listening to KHOL. This is Jackson Unpacked, our weekly show featuring reporting and interviews on local news, music, and culture. I'm news director Kyle Mackey. One quick announcement before we get started. New episodes of Jackson Unpacked will now be hitting your podcast feeds on Fridays instead of Wednesdays. Remember to subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts to make sure you never miss an episode and to support Jackson's only nonprofit newsroom. Coming up on today's show, the water source for 40 million people across the Western U.S. is struggling to meet demands from cities and agriculture. Last year was considerably dry, maybe the driest we'd seen, and now we're looking at even drier. Plus, Thin Air Shakespeare is back at the Center for the Arts in Jackson this week. There are different ways of approaching it that I think decolonizes it and begins to acknowledge what Shakespeare means. But first, a New York Times investigation published in late June revealed that conservative operatives infiltrated several progressive political groups across Wyoming in the years leading up to the 2020 presidential election. Directed by a former British spy and backed by funding from a major libertarian donor, at least one couple gained access to and befriended key Wyoming Democrats in what was intended to be a long-term intelligence operation. KHOL's Will Walkie reports on the fallout of the scheme. When Nate Martin woke up in the morning of June 27th to the New York Times piece outlining right-wing espionage attacks in Wyoming, he felt a sense of relief. It was honestly just kind of nice to have everything out in the open because, you know, we'd been anticipating it coming out for some time. Obviously, by that point in time, we knew that we had been targeted. Martin is executive director of Better Wyoming, a nonprofit advocating for progressive policies like Medicaid expansion and marijuana reform. His organization was one of several in the cowboy state infiltrated by conservative spies. The spies themselves didn't really have their individual motivations. They were hired guns working for uh, what seems like Susan Gore and potentially some other people. Susan Gore is an heiress to the Gore-Tex fortune and founder of the libertarian think tank Wyoming Liberty Group. She helped recruit two undercover operatives to pose as wealthy Democrats, infiltrate progressive circles across the state, and try and uncover information, according to the Times. One of the spies, who was using an alias at the time but has now been identified as Sophia LaRocca, introduced herself to Better Wyoming in a Zoom meeting in the fall of 2019. Yes, so my name is Sophia. Um, I moved to Cheyenne about a year ago and then moved across the border to Fort Collins. Um, Bo is originally from Cody, Wyoming, so um, that brought me out here. LaRocca and her partner, Bo Meyer, used large donations to insert themselves into the fabric of the left in Wyoming. Eventually, they went on double dates with Martin and his partner, a Democratic representative in the State House. Martin now says he suspected the couple might have been spies before the Times exposed them, but he still felt violated and lied to when it was confirmed. That's a a pretty wild and negative and disorienting um, experience. The spies also targeted so-called rhinos, or Republicans in name only, whom Funder Gore saw as enemies to her far-right conservative agenda, according to the Times. And Martin says he doesn't think this will be the last story published about those efforts. It does seem like Susan Gore um, and her henchmen, you know, did illegal things in the course of this operation, including making straw man donations where, you know, one person gives another money to donate. 
to a political campaign or make a political donation. But the fallout runs much deeper than the criminal justice system. Sven Larsen worked for nearly a decade as a researcher and writer for the Wyoming Liberty Group, the organization Gore founded. Despite knowing her for years, Larson says he knew nothing about the operation going on behind the scenes. But I worked for Susan for so long that I felt that she has thrown mud all over everything that anybody did who was associated with her. Larson says he's been a target of foul play from the left before, including in his home country of Sweden, but never at this level. I felt morally betrayed by Susan when, when, when I read about this. And to me... It's become more difficult for me to be uh, to get back and work with issues in Wyoming as a result of this. Despite Larson's condemnation, other conservative figures in Wyoming have been hesitant to speak out against Gore, including prominent radio figure Glenn Woods. But especially in today's day and age, New York Times lies. So don't hand me the New York Times and tell me this is a true story. I want more. Larson says there's almost no chance the story isn't true. You do not go after somebody like Susan Gore in an article in the New York Times unless you know what you're doing. Susan Gore is a very wealthy woman. If they had been lying about this, there would be probably 50 lawyers crawling all over New York Times right now. Nonetheless, alternative narratives persist. The state and Teton County Republican parties have both remained silent following the story's release. Larson says he hopes the investigation is a wake-up call for those conservatives and a reminder that convincing the other side that you're right through substantive discussion is a better way to get things done. By stepping away from that honorable debate and going into this, Susan has de facto acknowledged that she doesn't think that you can win the debate from the conservative side honorably. Neither Gore, her lawyer, nor the undercover operatives responded to the Times' requests for comment on the investigation. The nonprofit publication Wildfile has also published more evidence of Gore's financial influence in Wyoming politics in recent weeks. Will Walkie, KHOL News. next story today is part of a new collaboration focused on housing solutions in the Mountain West from the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Collaborative. The cost of housing has been rising in western Colorado's Roaring Fork Valley, and for some locals already dealing with housing insecurity, COVID-19 was a tipping point. Kathleen Shannon of KDNK in Carbondale, Colorado, reports on a new effort to connect those people to assistance. When you're dealing with the overwhelming stress of trying to find a job, where are kids getting education, where are we going to live? These can be overwhelming days. Jennifer Weary is the executive director of Alpine Legal Services, a nonprofit that uses monetary donations to provide free legal advice and representation in court. This agency has been around for more than 25 years, but the group received five times more calls for housing assistance in May of this year than it did in May 2019. 
The increase comes even as many face barriers to finding aid, such as lack of access to reliable internet and not speaking English. So what we were finding is that people were too overwhelmed to really navigate the system. They needed personal help. They needed a human. So this March, a group of nonprofits, including Alpine Legal Services, launched Bridging Resources, a helpline operating under Aspen Community Foundation's umbrella as a guide to a pre-existing network of support. When someone calls the line, a bilingual navigator connects the caller to agencies that can help provide food, rental assistance, childcare, or other services. So far, most calls come from women who have families and are seeking housing assistance. And an equal number of Spanish speakers and English speakers have called the line. Some of our callers, it's their first time. They have no idea where to go, what to do to ask for help. Jocelyn Rivas is the Bridging Resources Program Coordinator. She handles calls but can't always field them as they come in. That's when the follow-up process starts, and Rivas says that's a huge part of her job. We do call them twice, different days, different times. We leave a voice message, and then we also send a text. In the program's first 10 weeks, Rivas says 78 callers received assistance, and she's adapted the program to what she's learned so far. Rivas is bilingual, but not all her partner agencies have Spanish-speaking staff. So she's advocated for translation services. She's also expanded her method of follow-up. First, we were just referring people. So we were giving them, you know, a list of places that they can call. And we found out that we actually needed to make the connection between the agency and the caller. Um, So now what we're doing is if somebody calls in, we'll go ahead and call the agency with them. The go-to agency for those facing eviction or those who fear they may soon is Alpine Legal Services. Jenny Weary, who we heard from earlier, recommends that tenants who may have trouble paying rent should start a conversation with their landlords early on. She knows that discussion can be difficult, but Weary says landlords are more likely to negotiate with advanced notice. The further upstream we can go to prevent these evictions from ever starting in the first place. That's where we're going to stop the ripple effect of these problems. So bridging resources can help callers navigate the system. But that system offers more band-aids than long-term solutions. Federal eviction moratorium was just extended from the end of June to July 31st. But the cost of living in the Roaring Fork Valley is still rising. It was $1,900 plus utilities, plus water, plus trash plus gas, it came out to over $2,500 or more. Way too much for me. Glenwood Springs resident Sonia started a search for a new home for herself and her two sons after going through a divorce. Soon after securing housing, her dad passed away from COVID-19, and she took a week off work to travel to the funeral, which she also helped pay for. When she got behind on the bills, the Salvation Army paid one month of Sonia's utilities, and she used free legal consultations with Alpine Legal Services to work through her divorce. But still, her pile of bills is mounting. While she's been fighting to hold on to housing... You know, when the attorney asked me that, well, can you even afford it? Like, it's just kind of degrading. Well, yeah, I could have afforded it if I didn't have all this other stuff that happened to me. Jenny Weary says she hears from a lot of people whose financial difficulties are compounding because the cost of living keeps rising. The stories we hear are compelling enough in and of themselves. What we worry most about is the stories we aren't hearing. That's one data point that's hard to measure. Who is still being overlooked or is unwilling to reach out? 
Weary says that stable housing helps people get and maintain work, provide for family, and more. And a lack of housing contributes to mental health issues. Rivas sees evidence of this in many for calls through Bridging Resources. Sometimes we're the only ones that they've talked to about, you know, whatever problem they're going through. So a lot of it is about just kind of letting them vent to you or just cry over the phone. Just by listening, you're doing so much. For KDNK and Rocky Mountain Community Radio, I'm Kathleen Shannon. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Jackson Unpacked on KHOL. I'm News Director Kyle Mackey, and this is our weekly show featuring reporting and interviews on local and regional news, music, and culture. New episodes of Jackson Unpacked are now available on Fridays on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Coming up next, the Colorado River is tapped out. A prolonged warming and drying trend has left the nation's two largest reservoirs at record lows. And for the first time, a shortage will be declared by the federal government. Luke Runyon of KUNC traveled the 1,400 miles of the river to get a sense of how those who rely on it are coping. The river starts on Colorado's western slope, where father and son Wayne and Brackett Pollard run cattle. Up on a sagebrush-covered hillside, we look down into the Rifle Valley, where the men use the river's water to grow hay. Typically, this would be high water, and it hasn't really come up at all. They list off all the superlatives that come with life in the West this year. Driest, hottest, lowest, worst. Last year was considerably dry. Maybe the driest we'd seen, and now we're looking at even drier. Our springs are starting to dry up up on the mountain and everywhere. This dry spell comes with the usual lack of rain and snow and the relentless sun. And now a hot wind has arrived. Brackett says it's like someone is pointing a giant hair dryer at his pastures. It's just like sucking the moisture out even more so. Nearly all of the upper Colorado River Basin is experiencing severe drought or worse. Tributaries are running low and hot, and without enough feed, the region's ranchers are looking to sell. The Pollards plan to offload about half of their cows over the next few months. When you're looking at a, a serious loss of equity in, in really just rural America, in the rural West. So the first couple miles is going to be really choppy. About 250 miles downstream, the river becomes a massive reservoir, Lake Powell, where Sherry Fascinelli and husband Randy Redford are vacationing. The reservoir fills Glen Canyon, a maze of red rock on the Colorado Plateau. The lake is headed toward its lowest point since it was built. Fascinelli veers their speedboat into a side canyon. You know, places where you've boated for 20 years and gone flying over, all of a sudden now there's big islands and rocks. A stark white bathtub ring on the brick-colored walls looms over us. The record low level means its dam is generating less hydroelectric power, and it makes for a hair-raising boat ride. Plus, when the canyons get narrower, then you've got to worry about other traffic more. So it's a little more (laughs) nerve-wracking. An estimated four and a half million people visited in 2019, spending more than $420 million. 
But this year, several paved boat ramps no longer reach the water. So you've got the same number of visitors using fewer launch ramps. So you're going to have longer lines, shorter tempers. Further downstream, in a Las Vegas-gated community, the Colorado River's water spurts out of a sprinkler and onto manicured grass, catching the eye of Devin Choltko, water waste investigator. And there's too much water leaving the property at the moment. So we're going to get out of the car, throw our lights on, and uh, document the spray and flow violation is what we call it. Choltko works for the Las Vegas Valley Water District. She pulls out her phone to take a video of the offending sprinklers. So. Water Waste Investigator 9393. It is Tuesday, June 15th at 8.07. Grass like this recently got a death sentence. This year, Nevada declared so-called non-functional turf illegal, lawns that are only ornamental. Chultco's agency projects that nearly 4,000 acres of turf in the Las Vegas Valley will be ripped out over the next five years. Las Vegas already restricts lawns in new developments and pays homeowners to replace their yards. So unfortunately, we, do, we are in a desert and grass is one of those high water use, users. But the Las Vegas area has kept growing during the drought, adding 315,000 people in the last decade alone. As the river keeps shrinking, demands have to shrink too. Otherwise, the whole system gets drained. Conserving now means less pain down the line, Choltko says. Um, so all of these restrictions have allowed us as a community to kind of keep populating. I mean, the, the population isn't going anywhere, you know, so we have to kind of accommodate to that. The coming shortage declaration means another round of steep cuts to water supplies, falling the hardest on Arizona farmers. If reservoirs keep dropping, further reductions are coming to Nevada, California, and Mexico. This is, used to be the riverbed. Near the river's end, Jordan Joaquin, president of the Fort Yuma Quichan Indian tribe, stands on its banks, looking out on what used to be the start of the river's expansive delta, now just you a know, narrow channel. So where are we standing today? If this was to be watered, this would be all covered with shrubbery, willows, cottonwood as well. So, Not far upstream, water is drawn off to serve customers in Los Angeles and Phoenix and to irrigate crops, including local ones, says tribal council member Charles Escalani. So that's why I always tease everybody when they're from the, uh, back east. I'm like, when you're eating a salad in December, thank us, because that's where it's coming from. The tribe's share of the Colorado is part of a century-long list of legal agreements among those who use it. But Joaquin says in the past, tribes were largely excluded. When tribes were consulted, if that's what they call it, it's at the very end. Decisions were already made. The entire watershed is gearing up for a new round of policy negotiations. Perennial questions are being made more urgent. Can the watershed adapt to climate change? How will everyone get by with less? And Joaquin says, how can river management be made more inclusive? Water is very important to us. You know, water is sacred to us. So the most meaningful thing is to be part of the negotiation at the table, not the back table, not the side table, but at the table of discussion. Because the answers to those questions will shape life in the West for everyone who depends on the Colorado River for decades to come. I'm Luke Runyon. This story is part of ongoing coverage of the Colorado River, produced by KUNC and supported by the Walton Family Foundation.
After a forced summer off because of the pandemic, free outdoor Shakespeare performances are returning to the Center for the Arts this week. KHOL's Kyle Mackey spoke to co-directors and performers Edgar Landa and Kate Gleason about how they're updating the comedy Much Ado About Nothing for the 21st Century, including by making one of the main characters Mexican-American. I wanted to just start by asking you right off the bat, why Shakespeare in 2021? Why do we still need the work of this, this great artist? I've actually been thinking about this a lot over the last year, um, you know, with everything that's happened and the discussions around Shakespeare and colonialism and the force feeding of Shakespeare, you know, in our educational system. For the record, I love Shakespeare. I don't think there's a better writer in the English language. But I, I've been doing some reading. Uh, there's a great book uh, called um, Passing Strange. And she talks about Shakespeare and she really makes a difference between the institution of Shakespeare, the writer Shakespeare, and the plays of Shakespeare. Shakespeare is very much an institution in this country and in many parts of the world. And the institution of Shakespeare might be problematic. One of the ways and one of the things she talks about and one of the things I've been doing even bef before all of this is a way of taking Shakespeare and taking it apart so that it's not put up on a pedestal, so that um, we're not forcing it down your throat. And sometimes that's, we can do that in big ways and sometimes in small ways simply by changing some of the words, you know, by putting it in modern dress, by casting it, you know, in a way that reflects the way our country looks. So there are different ways of approaching it that I think decolonizes it and, and begins to acknowledge what Shakespeare means in small and big ways. I think that's a great answer. And I also, um, just to, to piggyback on that, the, the last part, the actual language of, of Shakespeare is still this incredibly living, vibrant art form. And the storytelling is still universal. It's still about love and war and wit and fire. And, uh, and all of those things I think are still universal. And uh, they, they still ring and have resonance today. So I think I still think of, of the language of Shakespeare as being very much alive. And rehearsing this play, it, it just it, it brought all that all of that language back again. And it's funny. It's smart. It's witty. It's dangerous. It's alive. Sexy. It's sexy. It's alive. It's all of that stuff. So um, so I think it rings true today as it did in the 16th century. I understand that you sometimes put your own twist mm -hmm. on on these these shows that are so uh, beloved and well known. But I wonder, are you making this? You know, how are you making this show your own this year? Well, yeah, and one of the ways you know to, that I take Shakespeare, Shakespeare and break it down is I cut the play. So our play is cut down to about two hours. This year we've set our play in in the late eighteen hundreds Southwest world that is not the frontier. It's not cowboys. It's an upper class world. There's leisure because the language is so witty and is elevated that it fits into that kind of world. And the Southwest, part of that, um, I was really interested in, I'm always interested in how the play resonates in this community. So in the past, when we did As You Like It, which is takes place in the Forest of Arden, we updated it to the National Forest of Arden. And, you know, the, the shepherds became park rangers and tourists and whatnot. So I'm always looking for that. It doesn't always happen, but in this production, we were able to do that. And I was able to, because I'm also in the play this year for the first time in my six years or so coming here, and I'm playing Benedict, 
And Kate is also in the play. She's playing Donya John. Normally played by a man. Normally played by a man. And um, because I, my parents are Mexican. I'm a first generation. I speak fluent Spanish. That was my first language. And so I decided that Benedict is a descendant of those Mexicans that, that were part uh, of the Southwest when it was Mexico, which, interestingly enough, Mexico went all the way up into Wyoming. And so uh, Benedict, you know, speaks Spanish sometimes during this production. Another way of, you know, tearing apart Shakespeare. Well, I know everyone is very excited to be seeing, you know, live theater, live music again um, this summer. The free performances of Much Ado About Nothing will be taking place at 7.30 p.m. from July 9th through the 11th and the 14th through the 18th at the Center Amphitheater outside of the Center for the Arts right here in downtown Jackson. Thank you so much, Kate and Edgar, for joining us today on KHOL. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. We'll now go to a Spanish-language interview between director Edgar Landa and KHOL contributor Alicia Unger. William Shakespeare is considerado como uno de los poetas y escritores más grandes de la literatura en inglés. Por séptima ocasión, Off Square Theater trae a la ciudad de Jackson una importante y reconocida obra, Macha y Do About Nothing, que se traduce al español como Mucho Ruido y Pocas Nueces. Con nosotros se encuentra Edgar Landa, director y actor de esta puesta en escena. Edgar, gracias por estar con nosotros en KHOL. Cuéntanos un poco de ti. Eres de descendencia mexicana. Mi mamá y mi papá, los dos nacidos en, en México, en la Ciudad de México. Yo nací aquí en Los Ángeles. Mi papá era carpintero y se vino creo que acá en 68 y le ofrecieron trabajo y su, y su green card. Regresó a México, se casó, se regresó con mi mamá y aquí nací. Maravilloso. <risa> Entonces has vivido lo mejor de los dos mundos. Sí, más o menos. O sea, tiempos diferentes creo. Mi papá siempre insistió que si hablábamos español, hablábamos español. Si hablábamos inglés, inglés. Y nunca los dos al mismo tiempo. Y éramos americanos y luego con la influencia de, de mexicana. O sea, en el Thanksgiving teníamos el pavo, las papas y tamales. <risa> Perfecto. ¿Cómo te nace el amor por la actuación? Yo era muy bien estudiante y creo que mi familia y mis maestros pensaban que iba a ser doctor, ingeniero, algo así, abogado. Y de veras, eh, cuando estaba en high school hice una obra, fue una obra de Shakespeare, y me enamoré. ¿Te recuerdas cuál fue esa obra? Romeo y Julieta, Romeo y Juliet. La clásica, la clásica sí. sí. Me fui a la universidad y lo primero que hice es buscar el departamento de teatro. Ahora continúas con tu carrera y te enfocas en Shakespeare. ¿Por qué? Para mí Shakespeare es el, el mejor escritor de, de obras en inglés. ¿Viene siendo como un Cervantes en español? Sí, pero en inglés para mí es Shakespeare. Y las palabras, los temas, es algo que todavía la gente les interesa todavía. Y tengo una, una meta de, antes de que me muera, haga todas las, las obras de Shakespeare. ¿Cuántas son? Trein, bueno, depende a quién le preguntas. <risa> sí. 37 y creo que llevo como 20. Wow, lo vas a lograr, pero ¿por qué a la comunidad latina le debería de interesar Shakespeare? Uf, 
en esta ocasión aquí en Jackson es no nomás la obra y las palabras de Shakespeare, pero sino toda la experiencia de venir al teatro, sentarse allá afuera con su picnic y estar debajo de las estrellas escuchando estas palabras. Y creo que a veces el amor de, de Shakespeare o el amor del teatro no es algo que te pueden enseñar en la escuela. Es algo que tienes que tener la experiencia para enamorarte de esas palabras, como me pasó a mí. Y para los que tal vez piensan que no van a entender la obra, a veces en inglés ni, no la entendemos porque a veces no estamos acostumbrados a cómo es que escribe Shakespeare. Pero no importa porque los temas de la obra se pueden entender aunque no se entiendan todas las palabras. Y en esta ocasión también es una comedia, entonces hay mucha, muchas cosas chistosas que son físicas que no se necesitan las palabras. Y como aquí hay una, una comunidad muy grande de mexicanos, de la, latinoamericanos, para incluirlos, en esta ocasión yo no nomás voy a dirigirla, sino voy a estar, actuar en la, en la obra. Y aunque es en inglés, para reflejar que yo soy de dos mundos, el mundo de, de la obra es en el Southwest, en Texas, es decir, ¿no? Y el papel que yo hago a veces eh, habla en español. Es importante para mí como hijo de, de padres mexicanos. Edgar Landa, gracias por estar con nosotros aquí en KHOL. ¿Hay algo más que quieras agregar? Muchas gracias. Que después del show, que me saluden para conocerlos. Muchas gracias por la invitación. Alicia Anger, KHOL, Noticias en Español. That's it for today on Jackson Unpacked. Original music for the show is by the local band Strombucket. Subscribe now to Jackson Unpacked on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts to get a new episode in your feed every Friday. I'm Kyle Mackey, and this is KHOL Jackson.